So today, you don't want to miss today's episode. Stay till the very end. There's going to be a lot of stuff we're going to talk about in 30 minutes. We are honored to have a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Ken Fisher. He is a retired nephrologist. Uh, he's uh, Now he focuses on uh, healthcare policy. And just recently, as in just yesterday, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about the COVID-19 uh, virus and where it came from in the Wuhan lab and possibly if it was man-made and funded by the U.S. government. So, um, Dr. Fisher, without further ado, tell us about that article and um, how you can relate to it. Well, I think first people have to uh, understand what gain of function research is all about. So it sounds like a benign kind of thing, you know, gain of function. Well, how bad could that be? But what it really means is you take a, a virus in the lab and you engineer it so that is it uh, so that it's more potent in infecting humans. And this is this kind of research uh, has been going on for about five, ten years now, and is majorly funded by the National Institutes of Health under the direction of the Chief of Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health, Anthony Fauci. So this is an amazing coincidence. So the and 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 and, and so there are a few questions. One question, the main question is, should the NIH be funding gain of function research, which is actually producing in level four which is supposedly the safest level of labs from which there have been many leaks in the past, um, should they be functioning this kind of work? And question number two, should they be funding this research outside this country? So, um, so it turns out that um, in, let's see if I could find the, well, about approximately 10 years ago, there was an article uh, in the Washington Post written by Dr. Collins, who was the head of the NIH, who, as you might recall, was the key person in, in, uh, in finding the, the human DNA code. So that's how he, I mean, he became world famous, uh, and he became the director of the NIH. He and Tony Fauci, and one of Tony Fauci's assistants, wrote an article in the Washington Post that yes, gain of function research is worth the risk. Uh, so, and, 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 and then other scientists pushed back and the NIH determined, uh, made a, a, a moratorium on research on funding of research, of gain of gain and function research using viruses. Then about three, that was in 2014. Then three years later, they said, well, um, Dr. Collins published a, a, an essay uh, on his website saying, we're gonna, re we're gonna renew gain of function research. And it also turns out 
that they funded a fellow by the name of Peter Danzig, who is a bigwig also with the, the WHO, to go around the world and search for viruses, coronaviruses and other viruses. The virus we have that is causing this pandemic is a coronavirus. It's an RNA virus versus a DNA virus. So, um, which means so for our listeners and viewers, yes. Why does that? Why is that important? Well, um, RNA viruses um, are more likely to uh, mutate. They, they they're not as permanent as DNA viruses. So you can play with them in the lab a lot more. It's a oh, lot easier. And and what you can do is. Um, um, you can pass the virus into certain animals, especially a ferret, which sort of has a lot of things like a human in their lungs and stuff like that. And you do serial passages in the ferret so that the RNA virus, which mutates a lot, then adapts itself to the ferret, which at the same time is adapting to humans. Right. So you, you, you have to ask yourself, why would you do this? Why would you deliberately make a virus that would attack a human? So the, 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 the rationale, which was never proven and is now disproven, was that, well, if you, if you make the virus so that it'll, from an animal that will attack a human, if it were to occur, occur spontaneously, you would know how to fight it. Well, okay, it sounds kind of reasonable, but it's totally not reasonable because you cannot predict how the virus is going to mutate in an animal. So what you do as a human to pretend that it's, it's going to mutate like you, you made it mutate is sheer folly because the, the possibilities are in the billions. <laughs> There's no way you're going to guess how it's going to mutate in an animal so that eventually it'll attack a human. So, <clears throat> so I got interested in this. Uh, and, and is it possible that this, uh, the pandemic we're going through now was funded in part by the NIH in a lab in Wuhan, China. Now the lab in Wuhan, China was recently built. It's supposedly a level four lab. And what level four means that it's the safest possible it can be. Well, it's a brand new lab. They didn't have the help, the trained help to be able to make it as safe as possible. And um, there were even cables from the, from the um, State Department, from the, the embassy in Beijing. They went to this lab two years ago in 2000, I believe in 2017, could be 2017, 2018. And there's an article in the Wall Street Post by one of the people. So they wired back to Washington that this lab is anything but safe that the crew is, is ill-trained, they didn't have enough funds to do it right, and these cables have been squashed. <laughs> so, so one of the diplomats had to send the cable to a, to a Washington Post reporter 
who then put it online. So, so I found, so during the pandemic, I, I, I write an article every two weeks for authentic medicine on health policy. So I decided to dig and find uh, references about all the, the moratorium, why some virologists said you cannot do this. This is ridiculous. Uh, and so the NIH did, uh, did a, a moratorium. And it was during the uh, Obama administration, and it might have come from Obama himself. I do not know. But then they went back and kept on funding. So one of the things I would like people, the, the government to do, is to just follow the money. Yeah. How much money has the NIH put into gain-of-function of research all over the world, including in the United States? Because one of the major labs that the Wuhan lab uh, uh, works with <clears throat> is in North Carolina. And those two, the Wuhan lab and the North Carolina lab, published a paper in 2015 showing a combination virus. Uh, they created a combination virus of the one from the uh, bats in, in, in China, which is about 600, 800 miles from uh, Wuhan. So there's no way it just walked there. Right. Um, and 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 they published this paper in 2015, showing that they could combine these this virus with other, um, this virus from the bats with another vi uh, with another virus that infects humans. And you say to yourself, uh, how in the world would people do this? As a matter of fact, the virologist in um, in France wrote. That this is this is crazy, this is this is sheer folly. Why are you doing this? So those two labs. So so how much money has the NIH spent on gain of function research in total? How much have they spent in, outside this country? And they're also funding this guy Peter uh, Danzig, who is tight with the <laughs> with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, who is, runs uh, wow. an entity called Eco Health Alliance in Manhattan? They fund him, and then he funds, and then he sends some of the money to the Wuhan lab, and other monies he uses to search for these viruses and animals all over the world. So, to make matters even more bizarre, the WHO just pub, you know published their report. Well, Peter Danzig was a major part of the of that group that went to investigate the cause of the source of this virus in Wuhan. So of course he fudged the whole thing because he's funding it. And there was another member of that uh, WHO group that just published. Um, from uh, uh, a Dutch lady who also does uh, gain-of-function research. And many of the scientists who write, oh, it couldn't have come from uh, uh, the Wuhan lab, also do gain-of-function research and funded by the NIH. 
So you have a, a core group of people who have been doing this for the last 10, 15 years, funded by the NIH, and surprise, they want to keep on getting the funds. Boy, boy that's a shocker. Right. They're, they've got vested interest in this, so they don't want anybody that's to think right. that, it, that the U.S. was funding something that caused this, is basically what you're saying, correct? Correct. And so yesterday, you know, which is a coincidence because, you know, we arranged uh, for, for us to be, you know, for this program weeks ago. Right, right. Yesterday in, in the Wall Street Journal, they're saying the same thing. Yeah. The main editorial, the Wuhan whitewash, was it pointed out that two of the people in this group were actively doing gain-of-function research, including Peter Danzig, who does, who organized a group and to, to write in Lancet about a month ago. Oh, that's it's impossible to come from the Wuhan lab, and people actually believe him, since and, and he's the guy can we, can we stream that article? What's that? Uh, I, I'm talking to our producer. I want to string the article up there so we can have it and make sure we put it in the show notes so people can reference it, the right. Wall Street Journal article. So what they also want to be able to reference, I think, is my article in Authentic Medicine. Correct. So here's the article you you were discussing you were discussing that came out yesterday in the Wall Street right. Journal. It was perfect exactly. timing for our, for our podcast, if anybody already it's, already It's unbelievable. Yeah. And in that article, they they point out that Tony Fauci has been funding uh, funding uh, gain of function research for years. Uh, they point out that the WHO uh, team was was uh, compiled of people who are actually doing gain of function research, um, uh, led by this guy Peter Danzig who's a PhD and goes around the world you know, looking for viruses. And of course he wants to continue doing that, right? Like anybody else. Right, vested interest. Yeah, yeah. so a lot of the people commenting on, on, on if the Wuhan lab is the source of this pandemic have a conflict of interest. Right, so let's go ahead and put uh, his article up, producer, and, and tell us when did you write your article um, well, let me look. Yeah, uh, February tenth. And and what what uh, uh, journal was do you write for in that? Uh, you write every two authentic weeks. Authentic medicine. Oh, there it okay. is, right there. Yeah. Yes, authentic medicine. So you wrote this before that article came out in the Wall Street Journal, and it uh, sounds like about a month plus. Right. Before. Right. And I. Okay. I, and I, it, it's you know, it's amazing. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems with Google. <laughs> But one yeah. of the things you can do for Google is you can find just about anything. So, you know, I had this idea when I wrote my article in Authentic Medicine. I've got to research this. What, what is the NIH doing? Uh, and, and that's where I found the article uh, in 2014. Uh, I'm sorry, before 2014. I, I, I don't know the exact date. Um, where Tony Fauci and uh, Collins and another fellow who works for Fauci said uh, during a H1N1 epidemic, uh, thinking about a possible epidemic for H1N1, but, but they wrote that the, okay. it, that the gain of function research on that virus is worth the risk. And when Collins reinstated 
funding from the moratorium, he said, these labs are absolutely safe, which is totally false. There have been hundreds and hundreds of leaks from level four labs in the United States, never mind from around the world, never mind from a new lab in Wuhan, China. Now, why is Wuhan, China so important? Wuhan, China is so important because the lady who runs that lab has been collecting bat virus, coronaviruses for the last 10, 15 years and, and has learned molecular biology to alter that virus and do and get funding for doing gain of function research on the bat coronavirus that this virus is a descendant of. So the virus from this pandemic was originally worked on by this lady in the Wuhan lab and with help from the lab in North Carolina has been doing gain of function research on this virus. So one, one has to ask the question, what is more likely? A leak from this lab, which the Wall Street Journal uh, piece yesterday says, says there's intelligence that some workers from that lab got sick in the fall of 2019 before this thing spread around the world. So what are the odds? Did it come from those people who got sick working in that lab, which the State Department had already said is not safe? Or did it come from frozen food, <laughs> you know, shipped from outside China right. into China? Or did it come from some intermediate animal that nobody can find? Uh, so, so, you know, this is all speculation. So let's just let me just clarify some things. Thank you for thank you for that. That's very educational, and uh, I really appreciate it. You're obviously very knowledgeable on this subject. I'm sure our listeners and viewers really appreciate it. So a couple questions. So as of now, the federal government doesn't admit at all to doing gain of function research. Is that true? I can't say about right now. Okay. I, I've read that there's a possibility that they stopped funding recently, within the past few months. And uh, I, 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 but I'm not sure that's true. Right, right. And, and there's a lot we don't know about this. And it just seems like there's a right. lot of secrecy going on and non-transparency. And from exactly. what you're telling me, to, right. And I, I think that's the whole purpose of having this conversation so we can educate our viewers and listeners so they can make their own decisions. So. Does the federal government, does the U.S. federal government even admit to funding the Wuhan lab as of now? Has that came out? I mean, at first they talked about it when the pandemic first started, but now I don't know. Where, where does the federal government stand on that? Do we admit that we've given money to them? Does our government admit that? Well, I have a reference uh, in, in this article that I wrote in February uh, that talks about that 2015 article in Nature Medicine and puts a footnote on that it was funded in part by uh, Eco Health Alliance, which gets funds from the NIH. 
Okay. So, so the editors of Nature Medicine said it. But has the NIH said it? Right. I am right. not aware. Right. I am not aware of them saying, well, folks, we have funded gain-of-function research. Now, um, there was also one of the key pieces in this was a piece in uh, in the uh, New York Magazine uh, in January that sort of blew the lid on this and got me going on, on, on trying to research this. This fellow did a tremendous job in, uh, in the New Yorker, 30 some odd pages. I can get you the, the references in a minute. I'll have to fumble through all my references. Yeah, we can, you can just send it to me and we'll put it in our show notes. I'd okay. appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Along with all these other references that we've, that we put up on the screen, we'll put those in the show notes. Sure. Um, our sure. editor needs to, I'll, I'll let him know that. Right, right. So, so this fellow wrote, it's about a 30 page article. It takes a lot, a lot of patience to get, to get through it. It's technical. Um, but uh, that started this whole thing, put, pointing the finger at, well, what's going on here? As far as I know, Tony Fauci, who's been a spokesman about this for months now, right, uh, has never in, in public in the past few months said, well, we have funded research that could have led to this. Doesn't say Right. Uh, now, which is, you know, duplicious in my mind. Yeah I'm, yeah. I'm not saying the guy isn't a brilliant guy. I'm not saying that he did a great job with HIV. Uh, you know, and he's done a lot of terrific work. In a, He's 70 plus years old. He's a little younger than I am. <laughs> uh, but, you know, sometimes people with tremendous gifts make mistakes nobody is infallible well and you already kind of said it earlier um and i'm not i'm not suggesting this i'm just saying it, it could be a possibility that you know right. fo follow the money i mean you already talked about following the money and that's really exactly. that really that's what needs to be uncovered is follow the money on this stuff because if we follow the money we'll probably find out a lot that's going on now speaking of that what would be dr fisher in your yeah. opinion what would be the only reason to do gain-of-function research? Biological warfare? Seriously. Well, that's very interesting. You should ask that question. Because it's called dual-function research by an executive um, at, at, at the NIH. It's called dual-function. And so, you know, for weeks I'm reading dual-function, dual-function. What in the world? You know, does that mean in government speak? Right, right. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, it means for weapons, biological weapons. That's one function why you do this. The other is this excuse that, well, you'll learn more about viruses that attack people and you'll learn how to fight it, which, of course, is totally disproven by this pandemic. It, had, it was of no value in, in yeah. fighting this virus. Right. The only thing that really fights this virus is a vaccine. And you could, you know, one of the things that I think people don't understand, you know, the regular test they did with, you know, where you stick a, a bunch of cotton swab up somebody's nose 
the PCR test or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's the the PCR test. Well, it's an RNA virus, so you use something called reverse transcriptase to make it into DNA. You then take apart the DNA and you say, "Oh, somebody has this virus." Right, and I mean we've been doing that from the day one. Of course, the initial test from the CDC was a flop, but the one from Korea worked well, from South Korea. So finally, the DSC, the, the the CDC in the United States—they only have a six and a half billion dollar budget. Only. They had to go to private industry to make the test. But you you would find the. The, the, the molecular structure of that virus, the genes that direct the, the creation of that virus, within minutes, within a day of when it first appears, there was no need to do gain of function to learn the, the, the genetic code of the virus. You could have found it right away. Right. Well, yeah. well the, the test... That, that we've been doing since this pandemic started is to detect the genetic code of the virus. So, of course, once you have the genetic code of the virus, you know, companies like Moderna and Pfizer can say, oh, okay, the protein, lo- the protein, the, you know, once you have the genetic code, you know what the protein looks the spike like. Pro- the spike protein, correct, yeah. Right. You, you can then you can then make a spike protein wannabe and give it to people and they'll be immune right Edward Jenner you know started uh, immunology in the late 1700s finding out that cowpox will protect people from smallpox right 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 so I mean this is this is one of the greatest advances man has ever made you know before smallpox, would kill 30, 40, 50% of the population. It probably wiped out 90% of the original people in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Smallpox. So, I mean, we think this, this, is, this, is, this virus is terrible. It's a piece of cake compared to smallpox. Right. So, um, I forget where I was going with this. But uh, the whole thing is, but yes, follow the money. And, and that's what I've been asking. How much money has the NIH, but it's not only the NIH. It's the Defense Department. There are other agencies uh, that I mentioned in the paper. Well, probably the WHO, right? The CDC, maybe? You know, oh, um, who knows? Right. Right. Who I knows? mean, and that's just it. You, you, you asked the question, who knows? That's what we should really know. I mean, exactly. you know, follow the money. Who is funding this stuff? And where was the Wuhan lab funded from? Where was this, where'd this virus come from? Did it come from the Wuhan lab? And let's just be transparent about it. I mean, the public needs to know. Well, uh, a lot of the records of the Wuhan lab have been destroyed. Boy, boy, that's a, I mean, that's a real surprise that the communist part, Chinese communist party, right. not, you know, and, and this lady has recently said, excuse me, the woman that runs the lab. There's been no military work in this lab when actually there are papers in existence that show there's been military work in that lab. Dual function, remember? Dual, dual function. function. Yeah. Dual function. So uh, let's see if I can 
No, um, no. I, I'm looking for an article from an executive at the NIH who in the, in the last paragraph says this was a total waste and a total mistake. And it didn't help work, it didn't help work fighting this virus at all. And we should never have done it. That's from an executive at the NIH. Wow, wow. If you if you wouldn't mind sending me that, I can put it in our in our show notes yeah, if you find I'm it. I'm looking for it. I have all yeah. these papers all over the place. Uh, yeah, you do a lot of research. It's it's obvious. You're oh, very well educated on this. I, I, I have the paper right here. Let me read the last paragraph. It's from a fellow by the name of Carl Sirotkin, S-I-R-O-T-K-I-N. And, and Dan Sirotkin, which I'm assuming is his son. And what's the title of the article, Dr. Fisher? Might, might SARS-CoV-2 have arisen by a serial passage through an animal host or cell culture? Okay. Gain of function research. So let me read the last paragraph. And, and the last paragraph is amazing. And whether or not gain-of-function research is determined to have played a role in SARS-CoV-2 emergence, the fact that it creates opportunities for pandemic viruses to leak out of lab, labs calls for reevaluation of the moratorium against this practice because the emergence of this novel coronavirus has demonstrated that the international public health community is not prepared to handle the leak of a pandemic virus. Furthermore, none of the gain-of-function research conducted since 2014 has provided humanity with any tools at all to fight back against the ongoing pandemic caused by this novel coronavirus. This is an executive at the NIH. And, and also, there's another point that I've written about in authentic medicine. And that is every virus has its own footprint. So the pandemic uh, in 1918 to 1920, which killed about half a million Americans and about, I don't know, five, 10 million around the world. Um, affected people mostly age 20 to 40. And in my opinion, that's one of the reasons we had a depression because it killed people in the 20 to 40s in the mid 20, in, 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 in 1918 and 1920. So those people were the major consumers in the late 20s. And we overproduced and right. we had a, the Great Depression. Now, whether that's, I'm not an economist and whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But each virus affects the population in a specific way. The flu that we get every year or every other year affects mostly young children and old people. So what is the demographic affected by this coronavirus. The demographic affected by this coronavirus is mostly people over 55 or people with 
serious health conditions. Right. Okay, so practically all the deaths are people over 55 and younger people with serious disease. So why? When this, and, and, and was this known early in the pandemic in the United States? And the answer is yes. There was the aircraft carrier Theodore Roosevelt, which you might recall, that the captain was thrown out of the Navy because he had about 1,200 people infected with this virus. He thought they were all going to die. So he took the carrier out of the, you know, off the line, and he went to Guam and got these people off the ship. One died for a death, for a death rate of 0.1%, which is about the same as the flu. Right. However, there were nursing homes right. in the state of Washington at the same time where flocks of people would die. So we knew. That's my home state. Yep. There you go. So then we knew the demographic affected by this virus. Right. So why, why didn't we pay extra attention to the people who were vulnerable, people in, in um, nursing homes, chronic care facilities, needed unbelievable uh, careful care? Because once that virus gets in there, it's going to kill half the population. So, and, and then let healthy young people who can carry this virus, spread the virus, but don't get sick. So why do we keep them from working? Because we wanted to stop the spread of the virus, right? But what people didn't realize, and what the, the group who did the Great Barrington Declaration, which you go to just greatbarringtondeclaration.org, they did antibody studies that showed the virus was already widespread within the country. Right. So that closing the country down would not work. Lockdowns could not work. Right. Because it was already there. So, so you have, to me, you had worldwide hysteria. And... And, and so instead of looking at, so instead of people who have been trained taking care of patients saying, well, who is this virus affecting? You had epidemiologists who had never taken care of patients. Even if they were MDs, they never took care of patients. Right. So they didn't think that way. They thought, well, we have to stop the spread of the virus. But what the great Barrington Declaration people, and especially a fellow uh, Bacha area or something like that, I can't pronounce his name. Um, he is a very special character. He, gets, he got an M MD from Stanford. Then he got a PhD from Stanford in economics. Mm -hmm. This is a bright man. Right. So he, early on, developed an antibody that was specific for this virus. And he went to one of the cities in California, and he found that 15% of the people had already had the virus, even before anybody knew that it was around. So how in the world can you, you know, stop the spread 
when 15% of the population already has it, most of whom are asymptomatic but can spread the virus. So lockdowns, and I've written about that, lockdowns made no sense. Right. If yeah. you understood the footprint of this particular virus, everyone is different. So that also troubles me tremendously. For sure. So you have, yeah. So yeah. the whole world is hysterical over this thing. And it's run by epidemiologists who are not physicians and don't take care of people and don't ask the right. question, who's at risk? So. Well, yes. thank you for all that. There's a lot of good information there. And we're, we've got a lot of uh, references that we're going to put up in our show notes on, these, uh, on, on this uh, podcast. So yeah. um, as we're wrapping this up, tell us about your book. Oh, You've written a okay. book. You're an author. So tell us about your book. Well, that book, um, what, I, what I wanted to do is to trace where the idea came from that instead of funding people who can't afford it, give them the money to take care, to run their own health, that indeed you needed a government, huge bureaucracy to do it. Where did this idea come from? Well, the idea came from Otto von Bismarck in Germany in 1888, that he wanted to take care of poor people, give them health, because Karl Marx and Engels were making a big fuss uh, within, the country, uh, within Prussia, and, that, um, and then he unified you know, Germany with the Franco-Prussian War. He was a prince. And, and, and he was prime minister of, uh, of Prussia. And so he started this kind of centralized system. And of course, at that time that you couldn't, you couldn't issue a credit card, right? That, that would be for health only. Right, right. Right. So, so where did this idea come from? Well, that's where it started. And then uh, George uh, Lloyd, who became prime minister, of Great Britain uh, as uh, uh, head of the Liberal Party, he copied that system for Great Britain at around, I don't know, 1890, uh, the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. So then they developed this huge bureaucracy. So then at the end of World War II, after people just got demolished in Great Britain, right? Just demolished. The Labor Party instituted it for everybody. A high bureaucracy. The, the, the government runs the hospitals. The government own, uh, runs the doctors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where it came from. So we, in this country, you know, and then I, I go into, you know, how the AMA was founded. And it was founded originally by a unbelievably uh, brilliant man, uh, Nathan Smith, uh, who founded the Northwestern School of Medicine, founded the Northwestern School of Law. I mean, this guy uh, was an intellectual giant. He founded the AMA and said, and the AMA came into existence just as scientific medicine uh, came about with Pasteur and and, and the, 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 uh, the germ 
theory of disease, et cetera, et cetera. And so he started the AMA, and initially the AMA did great stuff. However, <laughs> they got fixed on, oh, the, only the, that the patient has to pay the doctor. That's it. There are no other alternatives. So people were poor and the elderly and this, that, and the other thing. So Lyndon Johnson did the election in, in 1964, just wiped that out, right? And he started Medicare, Medicaid. Yep. Well, yep. well, actually, it was started by the head of uh, the head of uh, you know one of the committees in, in Congress, and so uh, and who who developed it in uh, in two days, by the way. Wow. So we're stuck with this thing, and the bureaucracy gets bigger and bigger. It so has. now we have industrialized medicine. So, so the the, the patient is just a tool by which to develop a bill. Uh, and, and it's a, to me, it, it's a good, that's a great analogy. That's really what it is. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and why we do this is because Otto von Bismarck came up with the idea over a hundred years ago is, yeah. it, it's just plain silly. Yeah. Fund the patient. If the patient doesn't have the money, give the patient the money. And of course, everybody spends their own money much more carefully than they spend everybody exactly. else. Right. And so our system is totally out of control with cost. Middlemen are everywhere, yep. just sucking billions out of the system. And so I wrote this book is, is to say how we got here. And I follow it, every, I follow it through all these major phases. Uh, and, and I follow how the AMA got totally uh, uh, co-opted by Lyndon Johnson. So now it's really a tool of the government and why. Yep. It, and I, I follow the money as to why it is a tool of the government. <laughs> and uh, so the whole thing seems rather ironic. And there was a plan in Indiana by Mitch Daniels, who I wish had run for president but didn't for reasons that we're not going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> and um, he started the Indiana plan where he funded Medicaid patients. And guess what? Gave them the money the first time they ever had a bank account in their life. Emergency room visits decreased by 75, 80%. Costs decreased uh, by half. And of course, it was squashed by by the federal government. <laughs> of course. Of so that, that's a good, uh, I mean, that's it sounds like a great book. What's the name of your book? Understanding Healthcare, correct? Understanding Healthcare, A Historical Perspective. How do we get in yeah, okay. how can we get out? Right, by Dr. Ken Fisher. All right, well, thank you for that. And so that's a good segue into my book because there's a lot of similarities in my book. I wrote a book called Sicken, How the Government Ruined Healthcare. Right. And how to fix it, and and you know I'm pretty optimistic. Um, I'm still practicing in healthcare, and I'm pretty optimistic that there is a fix. And really, kind of like what you're saying, patients need to be in charge of their own health. That's the fix. You no know, I, I do. I, yeah, I do talk about a six step solution, um, but the first one is patients need to be proactive in their own health and healthcare, and that includes financially. They've got to be financially vested. Period. No question. Absolutely yeah. right. And, 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 and this distortion is, is hurting industry. 
you know, they, you know, during World War II, that was another accident. I go into that, how it turns out that corporations are funding, you know, funding people, uh, people's, their employees' health care, but not directly. They don't put the money into the person's account. They hire a insurance company, yeah. <laughs> which is sucking up most of the money, right? So, yeah. uh, I mean, you have all these accidents of, uh, of, of history. And it's just destroying us. That's right. Um, you know, it's it's so strange. And and of course, people, you know, the politicians who are always, oh, I'm helping you. So you know, like for instance, the politicians believe that they have to control healthcare because individuals can't, right? Oh, oh, individual doesn't know. So, right, right. But they give people food stamps. Right, right. They give them cash. But right. of course, food is not as important as healthcare. I mean, without- no, exactly. I love it. I love it. You were you were preaching the choir, Doctor Fisher. Uh, you were preaching the choir. So, so and that, that also that also uh, reminds me, we are running out of time. So, okay. um, let's let's finish up the conversation. My question for you is, what do you have a passion for? What drives you? I I went to college as a chemical engineer. And I got appendicitis in the summer between my junior year and senior year in college. And, and, and I asked the physician to explain to me how he's making the diagnosis, what it means, how it, it works, how, you know, how can a blockage in my appendix, you know, cause me to die, you know. So it just fascinated me. It just the molecular biology, biology just fascinated me, and I love medicine. And I love medicine to be able to take care of people as human beings and connect with people, and that's the joy. And this government is taking the joy out of being a doctor. You know, physicians spend fifty percent of their time on a lousy computer system yeah. that yeah. costs a fortune when you can get a very good computer system from Atlas MD for $3,000 a year. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. So it's we not the idea that, Dr. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not that computers are bad. Right. It's the right. system that's bad. Yeah. So speaking of systems, uh, Monday, stay tuned for our show uh, because we will have uh, a patient on who um, had kidney stones, and he's going to talk about how difficult it was to access um, care. Horrible. So not only was it difficult to access, it became expensive, and it doesn't have to be. We will have a urologist on the call with us to see to t- to kind of guide us through the system about how it should have been taken care of. So tune in for that. That's going to be at two thirty. Normally we we stream at twelve thirty Pacific Standard Time, but tune in for that twelve thirty Monday. And um, you're going to send uh, me the link, right? You're going to I can. I sure can. Yep. Right. And and as always. As always, we do have our, our Thursday podcast normally um, at 8 to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And that about wraps up the show today. So, Dr. Fisher, I thank you so much. There was a lot going on there. And if, for anybody that might be a little bit confused or wanted more information, because I definitely do, um, we're going to put links in the show notes Great. on the podcast today. So there will be links to these articles and um, 
it'll be much easier to to do to do more of your own research. So, Dr. Fisher, you're obviously very passionate about the subject. You're obviously very knowledgeable. I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Sean, to be on the show. Thank you. And listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Monday. We'll see you later. Yeah.